All right. Hello and welcome back to Real Seekers. I'm your host, Dale the Real Seeker. And uh, today, actually, uh, it's a live show. I'm filling in as a co-host on Faith Unaltered as well. So my guest, you're going to be on two podcasts for the price of one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so yeah, uh, Tom, uh, we have a special treat. Um, I had a show a while back, a few months ago with Dr. Joseph Bergeron, who's a profound medical expert and a Christian apologist. And we were talking about various medical aspects related to Jesus' death and resurrection. And he recommended uh, my guest, Tom McGovern, who's also a medical expert. So welcome to the show there, Tom. Thank you, Dale. Glad to be here. Awesome. Awesome. And one thing um, I just want to do, I, I do it with all my guests kind of thing when they're new. I, I want to turn it straight to you uh, to just kind of introduce the audience as to a little bit about who you are, your background, and maybe some something about your faith journey, if you don't mind. Oh, sure. I think the the best way for this topic to introduce it is that um, I went to medical school uh, at Mayo Clinic after finishing college in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan at Michigan Tech University. And uh, when I was there, I taught fifth grade religious education um, at my local Catholic parish on Monday evenings. And during Lent in my first year of medical school, I thought, wouldn't it be neat to teach my students something about what Jesus suffered. And so I went to one of my instructors uh, there at Mayo Clinic and said, uh, Dr. Edwards, uh, I know you're a Christian pathologist. I'm wondering, do you have any information on what Jesus suffered? And one of my classmates had recommended this and I didn't know how he was gonna respond. He said, yeah, I think I can get you something on that. Uh, come see me tomorrow. So he said, uh, so the next day I went to class with him and after class, I went up and, you know, this eager young student. So Dr. Edwards, did you remember my request? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Here, and he handed me an article. And I looked at the article and was called On the Physical Death of Jesus Christ. And I said, well, that nails the topic. And then I looked at the date. And the date was for the following week. Now, in 1986, there was no online publication because there was no online. I said, how could this be? And then I looked. He was the author. So that's that famous article from 1986. He just happened to be my instructor. And then for my third year of medical school, half of our year was spent in research. And he was a cardiac pathologist. So wanting more time with him as a mentor, I did some cardiac pathology research with him. And he let me have access to all of his information on crucifixion. So that's how I got interested in the subject. Now, you know, you ask questions about my faith journey. Uh, I grew up in a, a home where uh, I went to mass every week, but we never talked much about uh, Jesus. In fact, until I was about mm, 21, it felt really weird to say the word Jesus out loud, except in church. Uh, a lot has changed since then. Uh, in medical school, my wife-to-be and I founded a, a young adult singles ministry out of which many marriages came and was still running 35 years later, I found out at that parish. Um, and I've been uh, quite involved in a number of different apostolic works uh, within the church. But uh, this was one area where I thought, you know, there seems to be a lot of misunderstanding here and wanting to get to know Jesus better. This was one way as a doctor who was interested in his faith um, that I could do that. Uh, but I'm trying to take my faith into the podcast realm for the last five and a half years. I've been co-hosting a, a show called Doctor Doctor, looking at um, everything possible medical through uh, uh, the lens of 
the Catholic faith, the Christian faith uh, that I try to live. So there's a little bit of an introduction and you just take it away from there, Dale. <laughs> all right. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much for that. Um, all right, cool. Well, one of the, obviously we're going to be talking mostly about uh, the death and resurrection of Jesus. We're approaching Easter. It's Lent season, right. but just before we get into that, obviously um, there is, what's the point of all that, right? And it's, we can see sin, the effects of sin. There's so much suffering and and that sort of thing in the world. So I just want to turn it to you. I know it's something you deal with in your book. So what do you make of suffering in general? And, you know, what what's the meaning of this? And how should we as Christians respond to this kind of thing? In medical school, we spent exactly zero hours, a big bagel, learning about suffering. Yet, that's what we're treating every single day, every time we have an encounter with a patient. I think suffering may be the most fruitful route for evangelization. You know, in this era when we talk about diversity training, I think that tends to separate us. I think what we need is commonality training. And I think the biggest commonality that everybody has is suffering. We can connect with anybody because we have all suffered. So I think it's an incredibly fruitful venue. You know, when I was younger, I was really interested in apologetics. And you know how many people I have profoundly affected through all my years of apologetic study? None, none. But through being vulnerable about my suffering, how many people have been furthered along in the relationship with Christ? An enormous number. So I've learned the hard way that while the head is important, unless it's your lived experience in your heart and connecting through suffering, we're probably not going to affect other people. And of course, God knew that far better, knows it far better than I ever could. And, and gosh, you know, Jesus hanging on the cross. I mean, God suffering and dying for us. I mean, that's a connection. You know, at, at the end of all my writings, I've written a course on suffering for medical professionals. It really comes down to the fact that when we're suffering, what can we do best? You know, for me, it's gazing on Jesus on the cross. How can I complain about my suffering when I'm seeing God suffering for me? So that's some of the, I mean, there's so much depth to what suffering is, what it means, why, why we can suffer. But in essence, it, you know, during the pandemic, I had the, my line of the year. I forget who, who said this quote, but it was like, Jesus did not come into the world to remove suffering. He came into the world to suffer with us. And for some reason, that is profoundly comforting um, and moving. Gotcha. Gotcha. All right, cool. I just want to show up on the screen. Uh, one of our listeners, Ringo Cat, is listening. He's dedicated. He's from Scotland. So he's he's listening in here. So yeah, it's it's actually early on our end. It's, it's about 9 a.m. over here. So all right, cool. So all right. Well, with that said, let's get into specifically looking at Jesus' death um, by crucifixion. And this was actually the topic of my Bible study last night. So, oh. um, so coincidental, right? So <laughs> yes. What, what would you say is some of the best historical evidence that actually demonstrates Jesus did in fact die by crucifixion? Well, you know, many ancient manuscripts only exist in maybe one autograph, if there is an autograph, or one copy that was done centuries later. And yes, histor and yet historians generally accept those as real. Yet how many 
early copies that agree with each other do we have of the Gospels? I mean, far more than just about any other ancient manuscript. So just purely from a historical viewpoint and literary history, there's there's profound agreement that Jesus Christ died, both not only in the Gospels, but it's even in writings of contemporary Romans that somebody named Pontius Pilate did um, did have Jesus crucified. Um, Josephus, you know, Josephus was a Jew who saw the winds of change coming across Israel and decided to go over to the winning team, the Romans. And so he wrote, you know, the antiquities of the Jew, the histories of the Jews and the history of the Jewish wars with the Romans when Rome was, when Rome, when Jerusalem was, uh, you know, flattened, leveled, destroyed around AD 70 by uh, Titus and his army. So I think there's incredible amount of evidence that Jesus existed, that Jesus died. In fact, it would take a whole lot of, um, it'd take a stronger faith to believe that he didn't exist and die than, than that he did. Gotcha. One, one thing um, I, I might ask, this is what I mentioned, but um, I know that one of the main reasons a lot of historians, even atheists like Bart Ehrman, Will believe in the crucifixion is because they'll say it's embarrassing. I think about it, a crucified Messiah. Uh, no right. one make that up, right? So, yeah, I don't know if you've heard that before. Well, I know that other other re religions say that. Well, yeah, why would you have you know the warts and all in the gospel? I mean, you know, he chooses to be you know his leader after he goes Peter, a guy who <laughs> denies him, runs away from him. Are you kidding me? He was so weak willed until. Pentecost, it's just, it's laughable. And yet all these negative things are, are in there. So yes, exactly. I'll hide anything. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I see, uh, I see some people in the comments we'll, and we'll get to them at the end. If you don't mind, uh, some people sure. are just, it's all made up and all that stuff. So, all right. Cool. Um, okay. So kind of moving on then. So getting into your area of expertise specifically from a medical perspective, mm -hmm. Um, what would have what would have been some of the things medically speaking that Jesus would have went through from the time of his arrest up to his crucifixion, um, and as well, like what do we know? How how did Jesus die from a medically medical perspective? There, uh, where to begin? I think that the the physical sufferings uh, start uh, Holy Thursday in the Mount of Olives, and I, I like in the background you've got that picture of uh, Jerusalem. I've been to Jerusalem three times. I've uh, I've walked the streets. I've walked the hills. I've actually run up the hills, and it's steep of, of uh, the Mount of Olives. Uh, so Jesus and his apostles must have been pretty physically fit. So it says that on, um, you know, the night of the Last Supper, after the Last Supper, he went out to the Mount of Olives uh, to pray. And um, while he prayed, uh, Luke, who was a physician, uh, who wasn't there, but obviously got it from, it must have been Peter, James, and John, because according to the Gospels, those were the three closest to him, that he Jesus was praying in earnest, and that his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. I think it's Luke 24. And, um, or maybe 22. Anyway, does this happen? You know, does blood come out of the sweat glands? And if so, what happens? It, it's interesting. There were a number of medical articles written up until 1964 about this, none with pictures, none with biopsies of the skin. And um, so, you know, I didn't know what to take from that. And then from 1964 to like 2004, it's like there's nothing in the medical literature about it. And then there's an explosion of articles from around the world 
about this entity called hematidrosis, hemata, blood, drosis, sweat, bloody sweat. And it shows individuals from, you know, children 11 or 12 up to men who are 70, having this event happen where in half the cases, the, uh, the patients don't know anything is happening. The first thing they notice is that blood's coming out from different areas. Most commonly, it's the face, the forehead, uh, the cheeks, but it could be uh, anywhere on the body. But in half of cases, it's associated with some uh, a fight or flight response when there's a lot of adrenaline um, being released. And, and so what they found is that, and they've videotaped some of these, they've done biopsies of the skin in many of these. And what they discovered is that in the, in the biopsies, which all except one, were done immediately after seeing it come from an area. All they saw was in the middle layer of skin, the, the collagen fibers were separated and there was increased space like swelling with fluid. But they didn't even see any blood in, in the skin. However, and they never, ever have seen any openings in the skin that could explain where the blood was coming from. However, in one patient in Thailand, uh, it was a 13-year-old girl, and she had it happening from her scalp. They did the biopsy while the event was going on. And what they found was fascinating. They cut through the biopsy so that every six microns was laid on a microscope slide and then looked under the microscope. And what they saw was that in the collagen, now collagen is what makes up leather. So leather is basically dermis or the middle layer of skin from some animal. What they found is that these, these fibers were separated. And in there was not only fluid, but red and white blood cells. And as they cut through it, they saw that the blood cells got closer and closer to the surface of the skin until there was an area where the skin just kind of opened up. It's almost like the Red Sea parting, uh, for biblical analogy. And the cells just going through the surface. It did nothing to mix with sweat glands. Uh, all day long, I operate on uh, facial skin cancer. So patients with squamous cell cancer, basal cell cancer, melanoma on their faces. And I look under the microscope to see if it's gone. If it's not, I cut out more. So I'm looking at slides every day. And I'm thinking to myself, how in the world, like Dr. Pierre Barbet, who wrote in 1950, a doctor at Calvary, he said, in states of extreme excitement or agony, the capillaries can burst and the blood mixed with the sweat in the sweat glands and then come out through the sweat glands into the skin and seeing all the various levels of cells between the blood vessels and the sweat glands it made absolutely no sense how that could happen so indeed looking at these patients that's not what happens what happens is the blood does find its way to the skin but it's not through the sweat glands the sweat and the blood mix on the skin not in the skin now would this leave the skin tender that's what Dr. Barbet theorized in Dr. Edwards' article in 1986. Um, there's really not evidence for that because in, in the, you know, several dozen patients reported in the medical literature, none of them reported pain in the skin. Half of them were in agony. And interestingly, every one of them treated with a beta blocker, a medicine often used for certain heart conditions, um, which reduces the effects of adrenaline that causes a fight or flight response. Every patient with that had a reduction and then a stoppage of those episodes of bloody sweat. So what would that have meant for Jesus? So he's sweating blood. He uses, loses some blood, probably not a lot, but some. 
it's probably, you know, that time of year, uh, you know, the, the best estimate for the date that this happened would have been April 3rd, uh, AD 30. Um, that might be on, beyond the scope of this, why I think that's the best date for this. Uh, would have been 45, 50 degrees at night with that wet on his skin. He would have been shivering um, and cold. It's probably the most that would have happened, a little bit of blood loss. So that's his initial suffering until he is then arrested and taken away. And when he's arrested, his hands are tied and he's forced to walk a little over a mile downhill, the down the Mount of Olives, and then back up into the city of Jerusalem. So the picture that you have is taken from somewhere on the Mount of Olives. He would have walked down that where there's all those, there's a bunch of tombs down there now, then up there weren't the walls at that time, at least those walls. And then went to the house of, uh, who had been the high priest, Annas, and that's where, you know, Annas questions him, and Jesus said, you know, why do you say this? And then his servant slaps Jesus, and, well, if I've spoken wrong, wrong why don't you say it? Well, Annas is fed up with him and then sends him to Caiaphas, who has the, the power, and that's Annas' son-in-law, um, and he spends the, the night there. But um, that would have been about a mile, mile and a half of walking a little after midnight, cold weather with dried blood on his skin. Gotcha. Okay, cool. And in terms of how Jesus actually died on the cross, because I know that there are, I can actually share my screen here just for a second, if you don't mind. Go ahead. Uh, I'll just show you. Are you familiar with a paper by Gary Habermas? Uh, I know he's a philosopher, but. I've read it, yes. Yeah, so he, he lists several different theories. You know, obviously the most popular is is the traditional one by Pierre Barbet about asphyxiation. You, you suffocate on the cross. I know that you don't take that view. So maybe just kind of describe what some of these views are and, and which one you take and why. Well, there is suffering that occurred before the crucifixion. So this will play into what I think happened and why I don't think asphyxiation is is logically tenable. So where was Jesus taken? Well, people don't realize this, but during the night before Good Friday, he spent it underneath the house of Caiaphas or where Caiaphas was. And that place is still present in um, Jerusalem. It's called St. Peter and Galicantu, which means cock crow. And there is still a dungeon down there that dates back to those uh, Roman times. And so there's evidence that Jesus was flogged there, not scourged, but flogged probably with um, either with uh, branches of a tree, leather thongs. We don't know, but there are marks on the Shroud of Turin, if you believe the Shroud of Turin is the burial cloth of Christ, that differ from the marks of scourging. But he was kept awake all night. He was beat. The Gospels say that. So he was sleepless. He didn't eat, didn't drink. So he's going to get dehydrated uh, while he's awake because when you're tortured, you, you sweat more. So you're losing important body fluid. So that's going to play into to all of this. Uh, and then in the morning, what, it, what happens to him? Uh, well, he is eventually scourged. And if you look at the Gospels, at least two of the Gospels, it's clear that Pilate initially meant the scourging as the entire punishment and intended to let Jesus go away. Now, with crucifixion victims, there are, there are many ancient Latin manuscripts that show that when the Romans crucified, scourging was the typical preliminary, but it was also a standalone punishment. But when were crucifixion victims typically scourged by Romans? Interestingly, it's while they were carrying the crossbar to the place of crucifixion where the upright bar 
would be in place. We know this was not the case for Jesus. It may well have been the case for the two crucified next to him. We simply don't know, but it would have fit better with Roman history. So what, what was scourging? So in Dr. Edwards' article, they say that the scourge would have had a wooden handle, leather straps, and then pieces of sharp bone and lead um, on the straps. Well, that could not be right. Only the Greeks used the sharp pieces of ankle bone to put on their scourges. The Romans simply used little lead balls uh, called plumbate, you know, plumbum. What is lead on the periodic table? PB. Well, the PB comes from plumbum. So <coughs> the scourging um, would have been uh, either tied with hands up or leaning over a low pillar. They're actually, uh, there's actually a, a pillar that's thought to be the pillar of Christ. I saw it a couple months ago in Rome. It's pretty low. It's only you know a few feet off the ground. We simply don't know what position people were scourged in. We can assume that the arms were raised above their head. So one lictor, one, one person, one Roman uh, soldier would have taken, and there have been scourges found in the catacombs, and the Vatican Museums actually has some of these. And they're, they're made of uh, brass or bronze. They're metal. They have a, a metal handle, and then they have a chain. And at the end of the chain, uh, they have uh, usually doubled pieces of lead little balls or kind of um, oval shaped pieces of lead. And these would, would strike the body. And when they were scourged, um, you know, a, a progression of things would happen in the skin. First you would get bruising, but then you would uh, eventually weaken the skin and the skin would start to open up and bleed. And you might go deep enough that you would not only go through the skin, but into the fat and maybe even into the muscle, depending how long it would go on and how hard uh, the victim would be struck. Now, I know you've had a show on the Shroud of Turin. I personally think it takes more faith to believe it's not the burial cloth, cloth of Christ than to believe that it is. So if it is, there are over 200 of these marks on the back and on the legs that show bleeding. But that's only where blood is shown. We don't know how many times, you know, would have struck Jesus' back and, and thighs if... Uh, where it didn't cause bleeding. So there are probably many more. And there, there are these marks on the front and on the back. So looked particularly vicious. This would lead to blood loss. It would lead to chest pain because being struck with that lead on the ribs, bones have a layer of tissue on them called periosteum. And the periosteum is very well innervated. It has lots of nerves to feel things. And those nerves particularly feel things when there is swelling going on around it. And so the more that somebody would inhale and the ribs spread out, the more pain they would feel. So people would try to splint themselves while breathing. Certainly Jesus would have a natural reaction. What is splinting? It's where, gosh, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. If you take a big breath, well, I get the air I need. But the pain of the ribs expanding against that swelling is, is more. So you try to hold your ribs in and still breathe in without the ribs expanding and just go with your diaphragm, uh, allowing you to inhale and exhale. So a person's heart rate goes up, uh, their blood pressure goes up, uh, they're in more pain, there's more adrenaline being released because of the pain, and they are losing uh, fluid not only outside their body from the bleeding, 
but you also start to lose fluid inside the body. What I mean by that is the fluid is no longer in the blood vessels where it's doing you the good it needs to do. So also by the beating on the chest with the scourging, fluid is going to go into the space between the lungs and the chest wall. That's called the pleural space, P-L-E-U-R-A-L. The, and the pleura is the lining of the chest. There's both a, a pleura on the lungs and a pleura on the inside of where the ribs are. And as this fluid builds up, it's also going to prevent the lungs from getting in air um, as easily. So the rate of breathing is going to, to increase also. So you have somebody in this state um, then going back in front of Pilate. And how how was, what did he look like? Well, that's when Pilate said, you know, ecce homo, behold the man. Jesus in this state. But what had been done before that, we also often forget that a, a gruesome anti-homage was played to him by Pilate's um, soldiers. And, and what did they do? It, well, the, the homage had four aspects. Number one, a crown, a crown of thorns made of, and there's currently a plant that grows in the Holy Land now called uh, Zisiphus spina Christi. <laughs> I've actually got a piece of one uh, in the next room that I, I somehow got home from Jerusalem. Uh, anyway, it has very sharp spikes on it, a centimeter, centimeter and a half long, uh, which would have grown around there. Now, do we know that for sure is the plant? No, we don't know for sure. It was 2,000 years ago. But anyway, it was placed on top of Jesus' head. And if you're a Roman soldier, you're not going to make a perfectly round little crown to put on there. You're just going to get something together because you don't want to cut yourself. I cut myself in blood just trying to get a little piece off of a bush there. So the soldiers didn't want to do that. So they put that on his head. And well, then what else does it say that they they played him homage with? It says that they gave him a reed. Well, I always pictured the reed as something like, I grew up near Lake Michigan, and there were all kinds of cattails and other reeds and stuff that grew there, and they were really wimpy. That's not what the reed is that grows in uh, in the Middle East, uh, the botanical name Arundo Donax. And these reeds are more like bamboo that can grow 30 feet tall or higher. And if you imagine a pool cue stick, that's about what you get for these, you know, one, one and a half inch across hard reeds. And then it says that they uh, also um, gave him a royal robe. Mm -hmm. And the royal robe, so it means that these bloodied areas from the scourging, they put his tunic back on it. Well, what would have happened? Well, the same thing that happens if you, you know, scrape your knee and you put a piece of gauze on it and it dries to it. So that dry to to open up the wounds on the back. And then, of course, they say that um, Pilate Herod uh, then had a, a cloak put on him. And then that Pilate had a cloak put on him, probably one that one of the military, the soldiers would have been wearing. And then that dries to him and they take that off and put on his tunic again. So reopening those wounds, causing even more bleeding, more fluid loss, which is going to lead him into something we, that's called shock. And so they then gave him the, the grisly anti-homage. It says they, they struck him with open hands and with fists. But it also says, what did they do? They took that reed and they struck him, including about the head, which had the crown of thorns. So they're using that reed to pound in those sharp thorns. And the scalp bleeds profusely. I operate on the scalp every day at work. And the... 
the veins in the scalp are set up in such a way that they're within these almost channels of connective tissue that once they're cut, they don't easily constrict back in on themselves like almost any other place on the body. So the bleeding can become quite profuse. And the scalp, like the ribs, has that periosteum layer, which has nerves that are going to feel that intense pain. So from this scourging and from this beating, Jesus loses more blood. His heart's beating harder because he's got more adrenaline. And this is the state at which he starts to carry the cross. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. All right. Um, okay. So, and you're talking about up to when he was carrying the cross and that sort of thing. I'm, I'm just sort of interested when he was up on the cross. I know that some people have disputes about, okay, were there different positions or, or yes. that sort of thing? And how would that make a difference medically? Exactly. It would. Yeah. Uh, well, let's get him on the cross. How how did he get there? What did the cross look like? I mean, I have a hard time watching movies about Jesus where Jesus is carrying this 300-pound two-part cross. In all of antiquity, in every single time that it's mentioned, the victims carried a cross bar called a patibulum. And it's... Uh, it's it's a grammar word called a synecdoche, where the part can stand for the whole or the whole can start stand for the part. And, you know, if you look in the Gospels, what do Matthew, who do Matthew, Mark, and Luke say carried the cross? Uh, uh, Matthew, Mark, carried the cross? Well, yeah, Jesus. No. Was carrying the It the does cross. not. No. Okay. Matthew, Mark, and Luke only tell us that Simon of Cyrene carried the cross. Look it up. Only John tells us that Jesus carried the cross. Okay. It's fascinating. And the word for cross there in Greek is staros. And staros could be an upright post or a two-part cross to the Greeks. The Romans used that word patibulum. Nevertheless, all the ancient sources say only the crossbar was carried. And in Roman, patibulum means to stretch out. So that would have been across his back and the two thieves crucified with him, carried up to Calvary, and then attached onto the upright. So most likely, and this is from ancient graffiti of crucifixion victims made during the first three centuries AD, while crucifixion was still going on, it shows the, the wounds in the wrist on those, and there's also some ancient uh, gemstones showing the same thing, that it was in the wrist, uh, not the palms of the hand. This is separate from the evidence in the Shroud of Turin. Mm. So the arms would have been stretched out and then put up on top of the upright. Now, there's a number of evidence, uh, pieces of evidence in literature, one of them from the same century as Christ, first century AD, in which... Uh, there is a farce that was written called uh, The Trial in the Court of Vowels, in which the Greek cons uh, vowels are putting all the consonants on trial. And it says in there, when it gets to the letter T or ta, T-A-U, the Greek letter, uh, curse Cadmus with many curses for introducing ta into the family of letters. Cadmus was, you know, an uh, ancient king who was thought to have come up with the Greek alphabet, whether it's true or not, they curse it because Ta has the same shape as the engine of crucifixion 
called Staros. And if you look at the shape of a lowercase and an uppercase Greek taw, it's this. It's not this. There, there's no, it's not a plus sign. It's like our capital T. Mm, okay. And, and there, there are other pieces of evidence, uh, including the graffiti, that demonstrate that. Uh, so it makes sense that somehow the, the crossbar was placed on top. Maybe there was a mortise and tenon joint. We simply don't know. Maybe it was nailed in front. Uh, in fact, a few months ago when I was in Rome, uh, the Empress Helena, Constantine's uh, wife, brought back from Jerusalem around 328 AD what were purported to have been the crossbar of the good thief. And I looked at it, and there's a, a bunch of, there's, there's a little hole right in the middle of it almost as if it was hung on a, a, a spike coming through from at the top of the upright. And then there's a lot of nail marks. In other words, the wood was used multiple times because uh, it was scarce there. So most likely the arms were nailed across. And we know from John's gospel, you know, the episode from uh, Thomas coming a week after uh, the crucifixion to the upper room that nails were used. They talk about nail marks. So we can assume that nails were used in the feet. The question is, what was the position of the feet? And if you look at images of crucifixion, they uh, there, there's four different options I have seen for the feet. Two of them involve a little, a little post or a little pedestal of sorts that the feet are put on, and two of them don't. And then in either position, the feet are either next to each other or one on top of another. I was an active duty army officer for eight years. I don't think that soldiers have changed over the centuries. If we're given a job as a soldier, we figure out the easiest way to do it, not the hardest way. So if you're a soldier there at the crucifixion, I just tried to imagine how do you take one foot and then bend it awkwardly in front and get a nail through one foot and then put it on top of the other foot, get it through that, and then get it through the wood. With, with the blood, the sweat, the dirt, not having it fixed to any position, how in the world are you going to make that, that happen? Well, the evidence shows something else. There's at least three now skeletons that have been found from time when Roman era crucifixion was going on that lend some insight. One of them was from the first century AD, about a mile north of Calvary. They were discovered in a, a Jewish burial area, a number of ossuaries. An ossuary is a box in which the bones of a skeleton are placed. And they're typically labeled with the name of that because families would have ossuaries and whoever's bones were and they were labeled. Well, one was found of a man named Yehohanan, Jehohanan, 24 to 28 years old by the, the looks of the bones. And what they found was a nail still in place through the right heel bone, the calcaneus. Now, in most articles on crucifixion, and where you see it, it's like, nope, the nail is, you know, through the top of the foot, the dorsum of the foot, between some of the long bones of the foot. Not here. It's sideways through the heel bone from outside to inside. And the reason it was still in there is because it must have hit a knot and the end of the nail bent so they couldn't get the nail out of this bone. So 
the most likely location, at least for Yehohanan, of his feet was straddling the cross with a nail through each heel uh, from the side. However, what is crazy fascinating is that both in this case and in one found in uh, 2021 December in England, another Roman era crucifixion, uh, the nail wasn't there, but there's the hole marks and the hole is bigger on the outside than the inside. So you assume it was pounded is that there was no hole in the left heel bone, just the right heel bone, almost as if the left leg might've been hanging there. This doesn't fit the few images we have contemporary where, where both heels look like they're nailed from the side. But then there's this third skeleton found in the Po Valley in Northern Italy when they were uh, digging up and it was an unmarked grave, which would fit a crucifixion victim. And there was another perfectly round but tapering hole through also the right heel bone. But this one from inside to outside, the opposite. So how does that work? Well, there's this ancient graffito from about 100 years after Christ found uh, near Naples, Italy of a woman named Al Camilla. So we know women were crucified uh, from this. And in her, instead of the, the heel straddling the cross, the knees are turned outward. The back of the heels touch each other in front of the cross and the nails are through the inside of the heel to the outside into the wood of the cross, which fits this skeleton found in the Po Valley and fits that particular graffito, which if it didn't happen, how does somebody come up with this? So that's at least two different positions for the legs found in, that we have evidence for. Now, those who say that the Shroud of Turin yeah. shows yeah. nails from the front of the feet, I have spoken with Barry Schwartz. Do you know who Barry is? Yeah, he's a friend, yeah. Good. So he was the official photographer for the Shroud of Turin Research Project in 1978. They had 120 straight hours of access to the Shroud of Turin for a number of ingenious experiments that they did and researches. And he said, and even on the Shroud of Turin Research Project uh, website or the Turin Shroud Center website set up by two other members of that old STIRP team, um, Jumper and Jackson, the the shroud is consistent with either method of placement. The blood flows do not tell us where the nails were. Uh, that's what Barry told me. That's what's on the Turin Shroud Center website. So in other words, even if that certainly is the burial cloth of Christ, it doesn't tell us. Also, then we have from, you know, uh, 40 years after the crucifixion, Josephus writing about, you know, hundreds of people being crucified in Jerusalem during the siege. And Josephus writes, um, and I think Philo of Alexandria also, no, Philo is something different. But Josephus writes, people were crucified some one after one way, one after another, some right side up, others upside down. There were just a number of um, grisly creativity uh, at work there. But there was probably a standard uh, position. It may well be that the standard position was just based on the little evidence we have. Most of it shows nails from the outside um, the, with the heel straddling the cross. So everything we assume about cross crucifixion is probably best assumed from somebody in that 
position. And with the body not sagging very much, most of the weight borne by the kneels through the heels. And by the way, uh, scripture says, now the bone of him will be broken. When you put a nail through a live bone like that, it doesn't break. In, in fact, in the skeletons, the bones weren't broken. There's just a nice hole through it. Interesting. Okay. That's fascinating. Yeah. Thank you. And thank you for bringing in the shroud as well. I was going to ask you that as a follow-up, but you anticipated there. So, all right, cool. So one thing I want to move on to is something that's interesting for a lot of Muslims and some atheists today, because okay. um, I had a, a guy named Arif Khan on, who's also a friend of Barry Schwartz there. And he goes for what's called this swoon theory, right? Okay. He says, Look, you guys are nuts. I mean, Jesus didn't die on the cross. He, he swooned. He he passed out, and in a bit of time, he was healed enough, and he revived to life. And they'll they'll point to as as a second part here. They'll point to Josephus, and he tells us that someone survived on the cross. So, what what's your take on this swoon theory? Okay, well, first of all, the story with Joseph. There was a little town called Tekoa, T E K O A. And he was on an errand for uh, General Titus. And on his errand, he saw three of his friends on crosses. And he says, whoa, 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 what's going on here? He runs back to Titus, which takes many hours. And he says, look, they, these guys don't belong on the cross. So he, he gets permission from Titus, goes, takes them down. Two of them have died. One is, one is revived. So still alive, 8, 12, 24 hours later. We don't know, but it was a, a good chunk of a day. So can somebody uh, live if taken down soon enough? Absolutely. A number of pieces of re number of reasons why I, I think that is is hard to believe. Um, number one, what what do the gospels say that Pilate did before releasing the body? He said they they thrust a spear into his side from which blood and water flowed to make sure that he was dead. I don't think that a soldier given an order um, is going from from Pilate is not going to make sure it was carried out because if it wasn't, he would suffer grievously, probably, probably with his own life. Secondly, uh, because of the apostles, okay, that would mean that there had to be a conspiracy. As soon as a conspiracy involves more than one person, Human nature comes into play, and somebody's going to give at some time. You're not going to have 12 apostles die awful deaths. I guess 11 did. John probably died of old age, but he was still tortured. Are going to go through all that for a lie. It just doesn't make any sense with anyone who's encountered human nature in somebody. It, it just doesn't make sense. I'm sure you probably have other reasons, Dale. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. So in terms of the swoon theory, uh, one of the main objections that I like that people like Gary Habermas raise is the D.F. Strauss one, right? Where it's, look, let, let's even assume somehow miraculously someone did survive. They would never proclaim the resurrection. They would if Jesus hobbled over. Blood, <laughs> and you're like, oh my, get a doctor, you know. They, <laughs> resurrection. So, um, yeah, Good point. But, Good point. Yeah, but but the main point for, for you here, obviously you are a medical expert. Look, it is it is given what Jesus went through, it is virtually medically impossible for him to have survived on that cross. Is well, uh, yeah. I mean, the, the description is so good of you know his death. You know, I don't know if you want to get into the the whole asphyxiation theory, 
Um, sure. Yeah. It's up to you. The, the, well, you know, the only reason I, you know, uh, I wrote the article, mm -hmm. uh, which is in print uh, this month, you know, it's called uh, Did Jesus Die by Suffocation and the Appraisal of the Evidence? I want it to be a little more. Um, uh, anyway, so I had taught for 20 years in talks that I was giving around the country and even in, in Italy and Jerusalem that, you know, my mentor, Dr. Edwards, said this. So it's really hard to go against someone you held up as a mentor. But after 20 years of seeing other evidence, I started to doubt and I started to stop giving talks. And finally, somebody asked me to write a course about it. And then someone asked me to write a book about it. So I, I did the research and it just doesn't make sense. So where did the idea come from? Well, it was popularized by the 1950 book, A Doctor at Calvary, written by a French surgeon, Pierre Barbet. So I went into everybody that he got his ideas from. And the first idea came from an article written in uh, 1923 by a Dr. Lebec, L-E-B-E-C. And he just hypothesized that the position with the arms out would have made breathing difficult on the cross and would have led to asphyxiation. No theory. It was just a, an idea he had. Um, and then, you know, he proposed certain things that might have happened, but there was no experimental evidence. Then in 1934 and 36, there was a, a Dr. Rudolf Hynek in uh, Prague, uh, Czechoslovakia, now Czech Republic, in which he talked to people who witnessed this torture that was done during World War I called Aufbinden or Anbinden. There are two different words given for it. It's a German name. Anbinden means to tether. Aufbinden means untie, which is presumably what victims would have yelled wanting to be untied from having their, their wrists tethered together. And he talked to some people who also then later witnessed it in World War II in Dachau. And in, but there's two different forms given for this punishment. One is the, the wrists were taken behind the back, tied together, and then those that tether was tied to another rope that was then tied to a beam above them. Yeah. And they were raised so that their feet were touching the ground and their arms were in a very uncomfortable position behind them, you know, raised up behind their back. The second position was the wrist tied in front of them and then raised up almost like you're in a pull-up position, except your feet are not touching the ground and you're hanging from the wrists. Well, what happened in these two punishments? And it happened more quickly for the wrist being tied behind the back than being tied in front, is that they noticed the victims would start to breathe very rapidly. Their faces would start to turn blue and sweat profusely. And that if they had their hands in front of them, they would kind of pull up like they were doing, doing a pull-up and then relax. And that progressively, though, their muscles tightened. They went into what's called tetany, like the disease tetanus, which is when your muscles contract and they don't let go. And it did it gradually from top to the bottom of the body till the only thing left for breathing was the diaphragm muscle, which also went into tetany, and then they would suffocate and die. Within three hours in this position, sometimes sooner, but always by three hours, or if the hands were behind their back, maybe 10 minutes and they would be dead. Now, if they, now some research was done 
by an Austrian radiologist, Karl Moder, and he used, who else, medical students, and he took their arms but a, a meter apart and hung them up and uh, found that, yes, they would have difficulty breathing, but if they could even rest their feet for 20 seconds, they were back to baseline feeling normal again. Hmm. So these different pieces of evidence were taken by Dr. Barbe to say, oh, this must be how people died in crucifixion. The problem is Anbinden and Aufbinden are not crucifixion. In those circumstances, all the weight is on the wrists. The arms are vertical, not nearly horizontal. Crucifixion, almost all the weights on the nails in the feet, not the hands. The hands are horizontal and you're free to breathe. There have been numerous, not numerous, a number of studies done with, once again, medical students, male medical students on crosses, usually held in position by leather gauntlets um, uh, for the feet and for the, the wrists. And in all of these studies, which approximate the position of somebody on the cross, none of them have any trouble breathing. All of them have horrible cramping of the shoulders and chest muscles. That's typically the pain that makes them want to come down. The theory that if, if asphyxiation was the reason that people died on the cross, something that must hold and that Dr. Barbe talks about, that Dr. Edwards in his article that numerous others talk about is to get the effect that Dr. Mauder talked about that, you know, that 20 seconds of rest on the feet, you know, would get you breathing again. They hypothesize that the victims would have to you know, straighten out their legs so that their elbows could bend in and they could exhale because the theory was that, okay, with arms out, the ribs are out, you passively inhale a lot of air, but to get it out, your diaphragm isn't enough, they say. They don't say why it isn't, but they say it isn't. So you've got to bring the ribs in to press the lungs out. So to do that, you have to push up with legs, uh, with the weight on your feet, bring your elbows in, turning about the nails and the wrist to exhale. In the reenactment studies of young men who are in an air-conditioned room, not nailed, not previously scourged, knowing they're going to get off and not die, they said, they asked these people, straighten your legs, stand up straight, use everything you got, push up, push up, push up. Exactly zero of those several dozen subjects could push up even once. They couldn't even do it once. Yet if this theory is true, and we know from Philo of Alexandria, from um, uh, Bishop uh, la, la, who wrote the Eusebius of Caesarea uh, mm -hmm. writing uh, in the first and third centuries, that victims often live for days. In fact, the early church fathers thought, and, and those at writing at the time thought that victims died mainly of starvation on the cross, of hunger, hmm. not of trouble. So to live even one day on the cross, and if you pushed up only once a minute, that's still near, that's 1920 times you have to do something that a healthy young man couldn't do once in an air-conditioned room. Hmm. That's pretty damning evidence.
There's also evidence going back um, 200 years before Christ, Bomokar. He was a general of the Carthaginians who had gone from Carthage across the Mediterranean to invade Rome. Well, he wasn't, a, he wasn't successful. So being an unsuccessful general, he was crucified. And it says during his crucifixion that he roared out in a loud voice and then died. You can't roar out in a loud voice if you're suffocating. Uh, what else? But I think that the Gospels themselves, what does it say Jesus did moments before dying? <laughs> he said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. He says, it is finished. Then he gave up at last and died. If you are dying of suffocation, carbon dioxide gradually builds up in your blood and in your brain. And you get sleepy and you just slide slowly into unconsciousness and die. You can't yell out in a loud voice at the moment of death if you're suffocating. It, it just, it's, it, it's the law of non-contradiction. It can't happen. Yeah. Uh, so, so for many and more reasons I go into the paper, it's just, and there's no, there are many descriptions of people on crosses, yelling, spitting, None of them moving on the cross and uh, none of them having any trouble wheezing, gasping for breath. You would think, yes, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. But you'd think that at least one person, if that were a major cause of death, would have mentioned it. Yet none of them do. I'm just curious as a quick follow up on that. Like uh, I asked uh, Joe, Joe about this as well. Right. And. Well, if, if asphyxiation is not the cause of death, why, why on earth did the Romans break the legs? Oh, I love it. Yes, you're <laughs> asking the right questions. Yes, right. why did they? Because when I give talks for 20 years, you know, Dr. Edwards in his article said, well, this is one more piece of evidence for it. Well, the simple answer is there was a nice article written about 15, 20 years ago in the uh, Annals of uh, Emergency Medicine, and they were talking about leg fractures. Crurifragium. Um, breaking of the legs was a standalone punishment in the Roman Empire, which could be capital or non-capital, depending on how severely it was done. The only written evidence of it being combined with crucifixion is in the Gospels. There's no other evidence of those two being done at the same time. Hmm. Now, there, there's a reason given. The Jews wanted the bodies off before you know uh, sunset and the holiest day of Passover. Had come. What happens when you break legs? Well, the shin bone, the tibia is right below the skin there. And if you are to, if you break that, there's blood loss because the long bones is where your blood is made. That's where the red blood cells are made. So they're incredibly vascular. If you have one leg fracture under the skin, you lose an average of half a liter of blood. If you have two leg fractures, you lose at least a liter of blood. And that's the range is from that to twice that. If you break the legs and they're sticking out through the skin, a compound fracture, you double that. So you would lose two to four liters of blood. An adult has about six liters of blood. You lose a third of your blood, you're probably going to die of, of shock. And that's if you're lying down. But if you're vertical, you're, it's going to be even less blood to do that. 
So the profound blood loss would lead to, you know, almost exsanguination. You don't have enough blood to keep up with the needs of the body to perfuse the cells with oxygen and get rid of their waste. So blood loss, rapid, boom, there you go. So there's a, to me, that's a great answer. Okay. Okay. Um, one thing, because I think uh, there's another explanation. I don't know if you've yes. already talked about it, but so, okay. so you take, like Joseph Bergeron, you take the shock that this is what really killed him. It's it's not. That, that was, what? well, then there's an, another piece. And this is where I completely agree with my mentor, Dr. Edwards. And he says in, in his article, he says hypovolemic shock. So loss of blood volume in the, in the vascular system uh, and exhaustion asphyxia with a terminal arrhythmia. So I would take two of those three parts that I agree with based on what I've read. And now I'm a dermatologist, but I, this article was written with friends of mine who are a pulmonologist and a, and a cardiologist. And if, um, let's see, where was I? You were Joseph Bergeron. Yeah, you, I was, I was, yeah, I was going to ask because I know that one of the other theories outside of shock as the reason for death, there, there's also cardio, cardiovascular trauma, which seems to be another. But that contributes to the shock. So th that is not at all um, inconsistent. I think it was multifactorial. Okay. Um, yes, because now heart rupture. No, there's absolutely no way that the the heart rupture that usually happen that will not happen acutely uh and if it does you have no warning that you're about to die oh so i know what i was going to say so those three things dr edward says i agree with two of them as being the primary drivers the the hypovolemic shock but it says what does it say in the gospel jesus knowing that the end was at hand spoke so how did he know and this is where my friend the cardiologist uh, dave kaminskis was so helpful he said that uh, it's most likely that the terminal arrhythmia was probably ventricular tachycardia. That's where the, the, the lower chambers, the biggest chambers of the heart start to beat incredibly rapidly, maybe 200 times a minute. And that is usually a, a pre-terminal event. Well, people feel a sense of impending doom come over them when that happens. So we don't have to pause it a supernatural way for Jesus to know that he was about to die. But usually people have 30 seconds to a minute before the heart goes into atrial fibrillation and they die when that happens. And in ventricular tachycardia is completely, is common happening from this downward spiral of losing all this blood volume um, and, you know, the acid and base irregularities, the, the other different electrolyte abnormalities that occur. So it gives a natural way that Jesus would have known he was about to die. Gotcha. Okay, cool. So what I want to do at this point, we've been focusing a lot on the fact of Jesus' death, but mm -hmm. Easter is also equally about his resurrection as well. So right. in the first place, I, I want to turn it to you and just ask in general, what, what, do you make of um, why do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Um, and how does that compare to like other skeptical theories, especially using your medical expertise when it's appropriate? Well, again, I'm just going back to human nature. These 11 men, Judas is dead. Matthias hasn't been chosen yet. Their lives changed radically. 
from being these scaredy cats hiding in the upper room to boldly proclaiming that they have seen Jesus alive. They are full of power. They are healing people. Many people believe in Mark Converted. It says in the book, uh, which which one of the letters of Paul? Up to 500 people saw Jesus risen at a time. Many of them are alive today, you know, in the language of um, Paul. Yeah. So sure. it, it's 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 changed changed lives. You know, like I said, once a conspiracy hits two people, you're going to eventually find out there's a conspiracy uh, involved. Hundreds of people? No way. It it just doesn't make any sense. Well. Okay, kind of looking at it, obviously skeptics are going to say like, well, transform lives. Of course, we we can admit that, but that makes perfect sense because they saw something, but they didn't really see Jesus. They were hallucinating or they're having some kind of social delusion. I, I don't know if you've looked at that aspect or, or not. Like, well, well, In reading about, you know, group hallucinations, it's not a thing. I just, there's just no medical evidence for such a thing. Yeah. Um, I, so, so show me the meat, show me the evidence for that. Yeah. That, that happens anywhere, anytime. For sure. And that's always lacking, as you say, right? There's never any evidence for these group hallucinations at all. So, all right, cool. Um, all right. So now we come to the, the, the Shroud of Turin, uh, a lot in the audience, you, you've kind of spoken about it. So I'm, I'm glad to see that you, you do believe it's authentic and that sort of thing, but um, I just wanted to ask you, given your area of expertise um, as a medical expert specifically, is there anything about the Shroud Man that, uh, in the first place, is it anatomically accurate in your medical expertise? Uh, is there anything that maybe problematic on that end or, yeah? Okay. Well, I think uh, for what we've talked about so far, one of the pieces of um, evidence or one of the anatomic consistencies on there is it does show one wound consistent with a nail wound. And it would be on the back of the left wrist. Mm -hmm. And there's a hole there that looks like it goes through where the eight carpal bones, the eight wrist bones would be, not through uh, the palm of the hand. And nobody at any time, middle ages, earlier than that, would have thought of making an image with a nail mark through a wrist. They were all used to seeing nail marks through the palm of the hand. So that that's that's a fascinating thing. Now, you didn't bring up the other argument in favor of the asphyxiation theory besides the breaking of the legs. And that is on that wrist, there are two blood flows at two different angles. Okay. And so people have said, oh, well, those are the two angles of the blood flow when they were pushed up on their feet and when they were relaxed. All right. That wrist, that area was against the wood of the cross. Okay. And it's, the, it's just all dirt and sweat and blood and smudge. There's no way when that body is taken down from the cross, you are going to see these nice little pristine flows. No, the Jews would have at least quickly washed the body carried it in um probably well we don't know how they carried it you know here there's one way that painting beside me that's uh caravaggio's you know laying jesus in the tomb was it like that oh by the way i just learned i just saw the original in rome a few months ago so i had this painted um nice holding the feet of jesus is uh -huh. nicodemus 
But Caravaggio used his friend's face for Nicodemus. You know who that friend is? Uh, no, I don't. No. Michelangelo. Oh, okay. <laughs> that is Michelangelo's face. So how was he carried? We don't know. But, and that shows his right hand, but it shows it through the palm, interestingly. Mm -hmm. um, so those two flows of blood were probably post-mortem, after death. But why are there two flows of blood there? Well, they'll, they'll say, well, you, you don't have a good answer. Well, I actually do. Because if depending on what position his uh, arms were in, you've got this little bump here on the mm -hmm. wrist. It's the, the, the head of the ulna bone. You got the radius and ulna bone. And that's just the blood flowing around that bone and going off. Okay. That simply explains that uh, much more rationally, I think, than that's the blood flow on the cross. Because it would have just been a, a dirty, bloody mess. So that's, believe it or not, yeah, I, I was waiting to this section on the shroud to bring that up because I know that there have been uh, various studies, even from skeptics, like the 2018 blood pattern analysis. And they do say that there, it's evident that there are different angles. Like you said, the hands were outstretched mm -hmm. flat, but they could tell that they claim that it was at an angle, but, right? But yeah. that's based on these flows. I don't think you can use that to surmise what angle. I think that's a, an error in reasoning. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay, cool. Um, all right. So, and in terms of the shroud, is there any, is there anything problematic from an anatomical perspective that would just speak against it? Um, and that you have a response for, you know, not? the, 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 it looks like the crown of thorns was more a cap of thorns, which is consistent with the gospels. Uh, Cause I think Pileus P I L E U S is the name for the cap of thorns being put on, which, does not mean a circlet, but is consistent with the top. And again, uh, a forger would not have thought of that uh, because all the pictures were, which was nice circular crowns. Mm -hmm. uh, the blood flow pattern on the, um, the absolute uh, above the eye, yeah, the, the number three who uh, yeah. shaped one. Yeah. Cause you know, there are these, uh, you know, lines that we make here when the muscles are contracted and the blood will settle in those. So that's consistent with the way blood would normally flow. Um, the location of the um, side wound. spear wound mm -hmm. makes sense. It's between like the fifth and sixth rib on the right, which mm -hmm. makes the most sense because the right wall of the heart is thinner than the left wall of the heart. Uh, and the heart sits partly under you know, partly on the left, partly under the breastbone. Um, and it makes sense that it would be easier to pierce that wall and for the blood to, to come out of the, the side there uh, and mix with uh, the fluid, the watery fluid that's in the pleural space, the pleural effusion, to which John said he saw and blood and water flowed from his side. So that's consistent with that. Um, the scourge marks, like I said, are consistent because the scourge marks are often in pairs and the Roman era uh, scourges that have been found in the catacombs are that style. So that fits. And again, somebody in the Middle Ages would not have known that. Mm -hmm. uh, what else anatomically is there? Oh, there's also a wound on the, it's almost like on the back of the right shoulder. And um, here's something interesting from um, uh, different people throughout history um, 
have had the stigmata, the marks of the crucifixion in their bodies. Mm -hmm. Somebody last century did, it was Padre Pio of Pietrelcina in, uh, in Italy. And somebody asked him, I mean, and he wore these gloves over his hands because there was a constant ooze for many years in his life, which actually disappeared the day he died, hours before he died. But they asked him, what was the most painful part? And he, he pointed to the shoulder. And there is kind of a, a mark like that in the shroud that looks like there was a lot of bruising, which would be consistent if you're carrying a crossbar and, and Jesus fell uh, awkwardly. Uh, and was not able, and the crossbar was tied to him, which they probably were tied while they were carrying them so they wouldn't slide off. So that's consistent with a, a wound like that. Uh, the deep scrapes on the knees are consistent with falling. Uh, yeah, so anatomically, I don't see anything inconsistent with what we know from the Gospels or or any crucifixion research. Awesome. Okay, I have two follow-up questions related to stuff you've said and about the shroud. So one of the things you mentioned when you're talking about that crown of thorns is that the scalp especially, it's it's hard for it to stop bleeding. So mm -hmm. um, obviously on the Shroud of Turin, they, they have these like shape, you know, uh, the shape of the wound. The bloodstains take the shapes of like little rivulets and stuff. Yes, yes. Would that be inconsistent? Would we expect like a bloody mess because the scalp... Would, yeah, like, yeah like, but but once you get to the sides, you see that. And I see that on patients. If my assistant can't get the gauze in there enough, I see that regularly. So yeah. no, that that's pretty pretty normal. So yes, on the scalp itself, be a mess. Um, but uh, even on top of the hair, you might get rivulets. And then on the sides, once it gets out of the hair, you get those, you know, irregular shapes, but usually in, in, in curves and arcs, never a straight line. Gotcha. And there is also the question, was the body washed partially or fully as well? And what difference that would make to the. To well, the that's a, that again is with the left, the left wrist. If it, it had to have been washed to have that mark there because that mark would, could, would not have been there when they took it down from the cross. Gotcha. Because of all, all, all the friction on there. Now, an, another thing they often say is that the, um, the back would have scraped up and down on the cross when pushing up against it. No way. Every experiment done. And then there are pictures even online of uh, 19th century Japanese crucifixions. The, the chest is always way forward out. Never is the back touching against the cross. And again, on the back of uh, the Shroud of Turin, there are no marks like that. Interesting, there are marks about a centimeter wide that would fit with a, a flog or a switch um, being used, you know, maybe the night while he was, you know, held at the place where Caiaphas was. Yeah. Okay. All right, cool. And last, so last kind of follow up for me, and then I'll, I'll see what we have with the audience and stuff. Sure. Um, so you mentioned that Jesus would have been in hypovolemic shock. And, and this is a, a common argument because with the Shroud of Turin, there's an obvious issue that, and this is what kept Barry from believing for about 17 years after mm. stir is the fact well, the blood's red. Uh, if it's centuries old, it shouldn't still be red colored. It would turn darker. And one of the explanations is, oh, well, Jesus was in hypovolemic shock and uh, Billy Rubin would have been affected somehow and kept the blood red. But I wanted to turn it to you from your medical expertise. What What's the explanation? Why is the blood still red? That is such a good question. I have not been posed it before, and I would have to do research. So 
Um, I like that. I'm probably going to go research it this weekend. I wish I could give you an answer, but I, I'm not going to try to make up something when I don't know the answer. Fair enough. Cool. Yeah. And um, when you do get your answer, feel free to send it to my email and I'll post it on the blog for people. But yeah, cool. Um, all right. So let's let's take a look then at what the audience has been asking. Um, okay. So we've had... Um, Okay, so we have a one skeptic in the audience. This is going back to when we were talking about just the general evidence for the historicity of Jesus dying, and he was kind of saying, "Look, Jesus Christ is a myth. He, it's it's all a legend." Um, so, what's your, what's your take on is Jesus really just a myth, that, and mythicism is true? What's the definition of myths? In one sense, myths embody our deepest realities. If um, I, I go back to a famous conversation that J.R.R. Tolkien had with C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis was a famous atheist. And in fact, he later would say an atheist, a young atheist has to be very careful about what he reads about history. But C.S. Lewis posed the same question to J.R.R. Tolkien. And Tolkien's response was that Jesus Christ is the myth that became true. Uh, so just because it has aspects of a myth, and it certainly does, does not mean that it is also not true. These, those are not exclusive categories. Uh, would you, and then, you know, the evidence, okay, on what evidence do you believe that Cicero existed or that Julius Caesar existed? Um, we have just as much, if not more evidence that Jesus existed. So I think it takes a pretty strong preconception to say, to not want to believe it than to just look at the evidence the same way you would look at any other historic personage. Homer, how do we know Homer existed? There's virtually no evidence that Homer existed except what he wrote. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly, exactly. All right, cool. So uh, this one comes from a Christian, S.J. Thomason, um, and she's kind of talking about the date. You, so you mentioned it's ah, yes. 30 AD. I, I happen to agree with you, but she's saying she believes that 33 AD is the best date for the crucifixion due to earthquake studies. Um, so I, I don't know if, yeah, if you wanted to respond to the dating aspect or if you know about what she's, these earthquake studies. I am not familiar with the earthquake studies. So that would be something to take into effect. There are also studies about, um, what's the word, eclipses. Uh, I simply looking at the evidence from the gospels. And so I don't know if you're familiar with uh, a Catholic apologist named Jimmy Aiken, A-K-I-N. Uh, with Catholic answers. He put out this really simple seven-step thing looking at dates from the Gospels. When, um, you know, when did the word of God come to um, John the Baptist in the desert? Well, it, it had to have been, no, it was in the, was the 15th year of the reign of Caesar Tiberius. So sometime in, you know, no later than AD 29. A anyway, there are three different Passovers that Jesus lives through. There was a seven-year period during, let's see, from 26 to 36, Pilate, Pontius Pilate was procurator. It happened during that time. We know that the high day of Passover was a Friday, and there were only two Fridays Passovers within that 26 um, to 36. Oh, let's see. No, I'm wrong. 33 is the date that I, I used to believe in AD 30. I do believe AD 33. I got okay. that wrong. 
Okay. As, I, as I'm going through the steps, it says 26 to 36, there are only two Fridays at which the um, Passover was up Friday, and that was 80, 30, and 33. And it looks like the word of God came to um, John the Baptist in the year 29, based on the years of Tiberius Caesar. There are three Passovers listed in the gospel. So three of them couldn't have happened by AD 30. So it must be AD 33 that it happened. Sorry, I spoke wrong earlier. I used to think it was 30. After And, and then uh, there's also these guys called, what is it? Archaeoastronomists who come mm -hmm. up with times of ancient events. And that's what they say. So S.J. Thomason, yes, I agree with you. <laughs> Fair enough. Thank you for correcting me. Awesome. All right, cool. So this one kind of goes to when you're talking about the flogging. So bring yes. that up. And he's saying, well, what is the evidence of the flogging? And I, I know you kind of addressed that in, in the show, but maybe also if, if you're aware, there are skeptics like uh, the historian Andrea Nicolotti. I don't know if you know him, who will say, you know, this, there is no evidence or proof for these uh, two, like the two little balls. We, those are just replicas in a museum. So yeah, like what, what is the evidence? Do we have actual archaeological? Well, <laughs> well I mean, that, that, that is hard three-dimensional evidence uh, that they yeah. were found in the catacombs. The Shroud of Turin, if you believe it's the burial cloth of Christ. And, and the fact that it's even written, um, oh, what's her name? She presented at a Shroud of Turin research pro conference about... 10, 11 years ago. She's an Italian. I've got her paper, but she's the one that did the evidence uh, or did the research, but there's there's ample evidence in um, in Latin writings about the plumbate, about using these pieces of lead. Uh, I guess you'd have to, the, the best book to go through, I don't have it in this room that I can show you. It's called Crucifixion in the Mediterranean. And the world expert on the history of crucifixion is Dr. John Cook. He's at a small college down in uh, Georgia, but he took, it's like uh, 450 pages, uh, and he's got everything cataloged incredibly well in there. And in fact, he was uh, a great help to me in this article I wrote because most doctors don't go through and get the ancient evidence. And so I made sure I had the evidence correct and in context and not taking it out. And he did that with my article before I read it and or before I published it. And uh, so there, there is a number of pieces. I just don't have them at hand. So it's not just those um, scourges. It's not just the Shroud of Turin. There's more than that. Gotcha. All right, cool. Um, and there was one other question. I couldn't find it, but essentially they were asking, um, they're saying like, look, let, let me say you've convinced me that Jesus actually died by crucifixion. None of that proves that Jesus died for our sins, that theological component. So sure. Yeah, what, like, what's your take on, on that? Oh, I can't convince anybody of anything. <laughs> you know, I can just present uh, the evidence. I mean, conversion is a mysterious thing that requires God. Right now, um, I'm going through some intense inner healing for wounds I've been carrying with me for decades. And I've wanted it to happen. It hasn't happened. Now it's happening now in a powerful way. Why is it happening now? I don't know. You know, God's timing is so incredible. What I have found is, you know, just praying a prayer to God. It's like, okay, if you don't believe in him, did you die for me? Show me that you died for me. Because what does Jesus say? All those who seek find. And he wants to be found by us. So that's all I can say. These arguments, you know, uh, you know, I'm reading through this 
fascinating tome by this polymath, Dr. Ian McGilchrist, on how we come to perceive truth and reality. And all our decisions ultimately are our intuition, our instinct, our gut. And then we only use the reasoning later to support what we already have decided. So that's why I'm saying I can't, I can't take reason and your intuition. But then there's, you know, G.K. Chesterton said he didn't, he didn't want to, you know, believe in the Catholic faith just based on one or two things. He didn't want to believe it until everything convinced him of that. So, no, nothing I say is going to convince you of anything about Jesus. Only Jesus can convince you about Jesus. But maybe some of the things that I say or others say might convince you to ask Jesus to reveal himself to you. Awesome. All right, cool. Well, I think that does it for all of our uh, all of our audience questions. So just want to say thank you so much for, for coming on. I hope that you enjoyed your time on the show. Oh, yeah. No, you were a great host, Dale. Thank you for letting me talk. You know, after five years of being a podcast host, usually I'm the one just asking questions. Sometimes it's fun to answer them. Absolutely. Yeah, it's good to always change up those roles there. So. <laughs> awesome. All right, cool. Well, for, for the audience, um, that's it for today's show. Uh, I have another live show tomorrow that'll be both on Real Seekers and Faith Unaltered. It's a debate on the grounding of morality between a Christian and, and an atheist there. So... Tune in sounds for that. Great. Yeah, it'll be awesome. It's, it's yep. sounds like it. Awesome. All right, cool. Well, have a great week, everybody, and uh, take care. Thank you, Dale. God bless you.